Mitch Bereldis, Steve Zinsmeister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. I gave Mitch the day off. Steve Zinsmeister with you on Arizona Sports Saturday. It is that week one Saturday where all the big football programs play the small schools. Michigan whooping up on East Carolina. Still 30-0. to zero. It's been 30-0 to zero for a while now, Trev. feel like your Wolverines need to get it together. Yeah, it's not good enough. Yeah, they're slacking out there. <laughs> Tennessee up 42-10 to 10 on Virginia. Uh, there's a blowout happening in Oklahoma, 73-0, to 0, and they just started the fourth quarter. Come on. This is what week one has become. The game that you do kind of have some interest in, though, is Colorado, Deion Sanders, Coach Prime, his first game, against TCU, a ranked team with an experienced quarterback who I think was a Heisman candidate last year. Uh, 31-28, Colorado leads that game right now. By the way, their kicker, Jace Feely, son of Jay Feely. Found that interesting, too. Um, so, uh, Coach Prime's debut, does he get a huge win over TCU? That remains to be seen. That game's got about 12 and a half minutes left in it. Um, from what I've heard, I'm obviously not watching the game because I'm on the radio right now, but I've heard that uh, Gus Johnson has said that Colorado is already in the Big 12, <laughs> so he, he might be getting a little bit ahead of himself, but I found that kind of funny as well. Um, talking about the Cardinals, I know I, I teased that we were going to talk about the D-backs. We will here in a few, but... Uh, so many headlines I wake up to over the last two days about this new episode of Flight Plan, it's the behind-the-scenes show that the Cardinals put out. It's like a documentary-style show on YouTube. Great, great show, by the way. I like watching it. It gives you great insight to some of the players. Sometimes you get to see some behind-the-scenes stuff you, you never would otherwise. Um, their latest episode focuses on the coaching staff, and it starts with a somewhat weird or awkward motivational speech from coach Jonathan Gannon. Truthfully, if you said, hey, JG, what do you want your team to look like? I want them to be killers. Truthfully, silent killers. Killers. Okay? So be who you are. Just understand, I'm looking for killers. So I guess people seem to have some issue with the fact that he said he wants killers, but he didn't really say it emphatically. He just kind of said it and they're like, yeah, I want people to be killers. I want them to be violent. And so I guess that wasn't good enough for some people. I'm reading headlines this morning. Cardinals get roasted over awkward Jonathan Gannon motivational speech. Jonathan Gannon awkwardly tries to fire up the Cardinals. Jonathan Gannon's speech couldn't be more awkward. Jonathan Gannon delivers worst hype speech ever. Jonathan Gannon gives one of the worst speeches in the history of spoken word. That was one of my favorite headlines. I don't buy it, but it's hilarious. Jonathan Gannon fires up the internet, but not his Cardinals players. NFL roasts Jonathan Gannon for unbelievably bizarre speech. Now listen, I could play you another excerpt. There's there's a part in there where he says, Hey, did you drive in? Did you take the bus? It's a little it's a little weird. It came off kind of Allen from the hangover where he was like, How about that drive in? Guess that's why they call it Sin City. Haha. <laughs> it came off kind of like that. It's a little weird. It's a little awkward. But who cares? This is Jonathan Gannon's probably first speech in front of his new team as a head coach. And he came in and set expectations. I'm going to play a one-minute clip of kind of the crux of this speech. And you tell me how you feel about it. If you feel it's the most awkward speech of all time, maybe I'm just missing the ball here. But what I hear is a coach setting expectations on day one for all of his new players. Welcome back. Good to see everybody's faces. Who, who drove over here? Put, let me see your hands. Who took the bus? Did you have fire in your gut? Did you? 
We're here for a reason. Don't get that twisted. Okay, we're here for a reason to win games. So if you didn't have that fire in your gut, you better you better light the fire pretty fast. Okay? So everyone's on time. Everyone's got fire in their gut. How you go about your day is going to be critical for our success as a team. Winning behavior is winning behavior on a daily basis to become the best player that you can be so we can be the best team that we want to be. Don't show up a minute late, I'm finding you. Because you're not putting yourself behind the team. You're putting yourself in front of the team if you do that, and it's bull because your buddies are counting on you. You understand? Jeff's counting on you. Nick's counting on you. I'm counting on you. Hump is counting on you to do the right So do the right or we're going to get waxed. Now you tell me, was that the worst motivational speech in the history of the spoken word as one headline read? Come on. This is a pre-training camp speech where he's seeing his team in its entirety face-to-face for the first time. I can forgive him for not coming out like Dan Campbell saying he's going to chew off your kneecap. Not everybody is like that, by the way. Not every head coach has the style where they come in and they rah-rah and they get you so fired up you're going to run through a wall. I know Wolfley talks about that all the time. I would run through a wall for that guy. Sometimes that's great. But this isn't a halftime speech when your team is down by a score. This is a pre-training camp speech. The first he's made as a head coach, I assume. I can forgive him. I can give him a little bit of leeway for not having right out of the gate enthusiasm and excitement, energy. But you did hear it there at the end. He got excited. He got energetic when he started to set the expectations, which, by the way, I appreciate. Set expectations. I much prefer my boss to tell me exactly what they expect of me rather than, you know, give me the harsh truth rather than fluff me up. I would take that any day of the week. JG talks about he wants violence. He wants killers. He's, of course, speaking metaphorically because this is a violent sport. Good. Violent game needs violent players. He's looking for energy out of these guys. I have no problem with his motivational speech. By the way, it doesn't need to be all that motivational on day one. He needs to set the expectations. We're not going to come in here and, and be all lazy. You need to be here on time. And you know what? These, this is a room full of 22-year-olds, a lot of them. A lot of them probably need to be told to show up on time. Seems kind of like a small thing. Seems like minutia, but it's not. A lot of these guys are first-time employees. They've never worked for anybody in their life. They played college ball, most of them, hopefully, but I mean, come on. What do you expect on day one? You wanted Jonathan Gannon to come out and give a halftime at the Super Bowl speech? Because I'm thinking that's going to be a little different. He's also a bit of a rookie at this. I'll cut him some slack. And this is also an edited show. It's not like that was the full speech. We didn't see everything Jonathan Gannon said in that couple of minutes. We didn't. They edited it together. So come on. Headlines. Cardinals get roasted over motivational speech. Worst motivational speech in the history of the spoken word. Have you heard every speech ever in the history of spoken word? Get over yourselves. This episode focused a lot on the coaching staff, which was great. 
you got an opportunity to see a lot of Nick Rollis, Drew Petzing, the two coordinators, and their bond that they formed in their time in Minnesota, which happened to be, uh, they showed a lot of footage from the Cardinals practicing with the Vikings in Minnesota just a couple weeks ago, um, and talking about them building that relationship. I feel a sense of camaraderie with, among this coaching staff that I never felt with Cliff Kingsbury and Vance Joseph. Now, I felt good about having Vance Joseph in the building. I mean, the guy's a walking top 10 defense. He's got head coaching experience. He's personable. The players respect him. I loved Vance Joseph as a coach. Maybe even more than I like some of these coordinators. But it always felt like Cliff Kingsbury and Vance Joseph next to each other, almost as like co-head coaches almost. There was Cliff in his offense and Vance in his defense. And sometimes that works really well, by the way. Sometimes that works great. And I liked that hire when they hired Vance Joseph. But this Cardinals coaching staff, whether it goes well or not, feels like it is JG's team. The defense feels like Nick Rollis. The offense feels like Drew Petzing. It's just the way it is. Like They all feel like a cohesive unit. They know each other. They like each other. That's not to say that Cliff and Vance didn't like each other, but when Cliff got fired, Vance got an opportunity to interview for the head coaching position. And I was okay with that. I wouldn't have given him the job. Clearly the Cardinals didn't either. But what does that tell you? I mean, it's kind of different, right? These guys report to JG. There's nothing that's not clear about that. It was an interesting perspective on the coaching staff. They also got into zero player aspects. There was almost no player interaction in the entire episode. Uh, there was a small interaction between Drew Petzing and Kelvin Beecham, but Beecham barely spoke. Um, they are not focused on the players in this episode. You're learning all about the coaching staff. Some really interesting nuggets in there, too, about Jeff Rogers, uh, the special teams coordinator. He uh, spent some time riding the bike to work, and so that was interesting as well. Before I had to break, TCU just took a lead on Colorado, so the whole Deion Sanders, Coach Prime debut, really starting to get interesting. We're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk more about uh, what happened at the ASU football game the other night. I think I probably would have made a different decision than ASU football did. We'll talk more about that on the other side of the break. It's Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Steve Zinsmeister with you, riding solo today. I gave Mitch the day off. He deserves it. Trevor Henry's behind the glass. He's been helping me out today as well. ASU football and the D-backs both made decisions this week that I'm not cool with, that I would have made different calls. I guess I'm okay with them, but I, I, I'm not satisfied. I'm a little hungry for better. Let's start with ASU football. Two-hour, two-plus-hour delay for the weather and a midnight restart of the game. It was around midnight that they had to restart the game. That's 3 a.m. East Coast time by my estimation. Three-quarters of the country was asleep when you were up 21-7 to on an FCS school in southern Utah that nobody cares about. Maybe the entire country was asleep, because I know a lot of people here in Arizona that went to bed before a second half kicked off. There were 300 fans in the stands. I checked in with Jeff Munn, uh, pre- and post-game show host for the Sun Devil Network, and he said he counted 300 people that stayed to watch, many of them students, by the way, which is great. But 300 people are watching in the stands. The game's on the Pac-12 network, which nobody gets. Nobody is watching your game at midnight 
when you're up 21 to 7 on an FCS school. Not even a particularly good FCS school. You're playing an FCS school in Southern Utah that nobody really minds. They're not paying attention to them. You should be kicking their butts. And at halftime, you were. But there's no reason to come back out at midnight and play the second half. They should have just ended the game there. They should have negotiated some sort of postponement I mean, or forfeit, whatever the case may be. They should have negotiated that because there's only two options when you come back out of that locker room after a two-plus-hour delay for the weather. Number one, you could come back out and kick their butts while nobody is watching. Congratulations. What did you accomplish? Or, number two, you could come back out flat and let a terrible team back into the game and possibly even have the chance to win it on the last drive. Which, oh, by the way, that's what ended up happening. You almost lost that game, which would have been... I mean, today we would be having we'd be having a much different conversation. We wouldn't be talking about the ramifications of the weather today if ASU had lost to an FCS team in Kenny Dillingham's first game. Which, by the way, I thought Jaden Rashada looked fine at times. Definitely loved him in the first half. Um, still some things to work on, obviously, but made some big league throws throughout the course of the game. It's just that you came out totally flat as a team in the second half. You score three points and you let Southern Utah back in the game with a chance to win. Now, I may have wanted the game to end at midnight because I wasn't benefiting at all from them playing in that second half. But it's not like Kenny Dillingham was ever going to let that happen. He didn't want to end the game there. My guess is he would have done anything possible, anything within his power to make sure that his team saw the field again. Why? Because Kenny needs to see more from his freshman quarterback. He just needs to see reps. He needs to see gameplay. He needs to see his 50-plus new players that he's got from transfers and freshmen and recruits. He needs to see them on the field. Heck, he might even have some new recruits in for the first game of the season. I don't know that they do that all that often early in the year, but they might. They might have had some guys that were there to see this team play. You don't want a wasted trip. Kenny Dillingham learned something in the second half. He learned how his team is going to react to adversity. And I got to be honest with you, it wasn't great. There's a lot that they need to clean up. And I'm sure that Kenny Dillingham wakes up today and he's happy that they played that second half. He's happy that he got the chance to see how those guys would react. Because now he knows how to fix it. And he knows that it's a problem that's in need of being fixed. Because if they had called the game at halftime, you're up by two scores. It doesn't look like there's as much going wrong. Not as much to fix. But also, smaller sample size. So while I would have called the game at halftime, because I just don't think anybody was caring at that point. Nobody's watching. Nobody's watching on TV. Everybody in the country is asleep at that point. There wasn't much point in playing that second half. Kenny Dillingham saw a reason to play that second half. He was always going to go back out there. The bad decision that the Diamondbacks made this week, probably more egregious in my opinion. September call-ups happened yesterday, September 1st. Rosters go from 26 to 28. Most teams just call up one extra pitcher. They call up one extra hitter. You wash your hands of it at that point. Some teams call up their top prospects. The New York Yankees called up a guy who goes by the Martian because he's out of this world, I guess. Jason Dominguez comes up and homers in his first game against Justin Verlander, of all people. That's the excitement that can come with September call-ups. What excitement came from the Diamondbacks September call-ups? Paven Smith. Emmanuel Rivera, Luis Frias. Not a lot there to love 
I understand some of the moves. Tori Lovello says Paven Smith is up because he's a versatile defender. That's the nice way of saying he's not particularly great at any position. Uh, he says, and you know, having an extra bullpen arm in Frias, I get it, I guess, but he's not the guy I want out there in a game where you're actually able to win. Emmanuel Rivera plays third base. He's a part of a coalition of third basemen who have put together a negative war over the course of this season. The Diamondbacks should have called up Jordan Lawler, their super prospect, shortstop. He's been playing in Reno for the last couple of weeks. It's not a big sample size, don't get me wrong. And he may not be a fully developed shortstop at this point. I still have a little bit of skepticism about the defense, but I think there's huge upside there. He still needs to learn a little bit. He can benefit from the minor leagues. There's no doubt. But you don't have a better player at the major league level at shortstop or third base. I would argue Perdomo is really the only good option at either of those positions right now. He's had a really good season after having a really bad one last year. Perdomo has exceeded all expectations. Why not slide Geraldo Perdomo over to third base, call up Lawler, let him play some short. Nick Ahmed can still get in there occasionally. There's no no issue with that. Lawler's the best athlete, the best player you have. And he's sitting at AAA. I know he hasn't been there long, but this guy is a mega talent. He's going to be your starting shortstop eventually. Why not give him the opportunity to try now when you have a hole in your roster, in your lineup at third base, that you could fill with a talented young player. Make them postseason eligible. See what he can do. And you know what? Worst case scenario, he doesn't play up to snuff. He's not great in September. Maybe you make the playoffs, and it's not even really worth playing him in the playoffs, maybe. So what? You get to spring training and you put him back in Reno. There's no problem there. The best players should be on this team right now competing for a wild card spot. If you're going to be competing for that third wild card or even the second wild card, which is still a possibility, the Diamondbacks should be putting the best possible players out there. Jordan Lawler's better than Nick Ahmed. Jordan Lawler's better than Emmanuel Rivera. No offense to those guys. They can still play and still make contributions to this team. Lawler's the better player. I think he might even be better than Perdomo right now. Perdomo's just having a really nice season. They can both play. The Red Sox did it in 2013. They called up Xander Bogarts because Will Middlebrooks had missed a month or a month and a half of the season. He wasn't hitting very well at third base. They called up their shortstop prospect, Xander Bogarts. He plays some third, plays some short. They go on and win the World Series. Now that's a absolute best-case scenario for the Diamondbacks. No, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're winning the World Series. But if you have a blatant hole in your lineup and a superstar prospect waiting for opportunity, seems like a no-brainer to me. But no, let's keep him in AAA. He, he still needs some seasoning. He's still got things he can learn. And I'm not arguing that he doesn't. Can he not learn some of those things at the major league level while he helps you compete for a playoff spot? Because I swear, if we get to a month from now and the Diamondbacks are a couple of games out of a wild card and don't quite make it, and third base has been an absolute hole in September the way it has been for the last five months, I am going to look around and be like, why did we not call up Jordan Baller? Especially if he tears it up in AAA the way that I expect him to. We're all going to be looking back a month from now and saying, why didn't we do that? We'd probably be a playoff team right now. I get it. Baseball, more than any other sport, you play the long game. You let a 19-year-old, an 18-year-old kid that you draft, you let him play in the minors for four years, and then they get called up eventually. I get it. 
But at the same time, there's no other sport in American professional sports that does this. If you're a great player, you're a superstar prospect in football, you play in the NFL in your first year. You play in the NBA in your first year. You don't go to the G League when you're an amazing talent. They don't do that. This is the only sport that does this. I think the Diamondbacks made the wrong decision. Coming up next, we'll talk a little bit more Cardinals as we prepare for week one of the season. Eric Ruby, my friend, is going to join me here in the next segment as well. It's Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch Ferelvis, Steve Zinsmeister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Things are getting interesting in Coach Prime's debut. Colorado just up 45-42, to 42, four minutes or so left in that game. Huge implications there and really the debut of Coach Prime and a whole new style to the Pac-12, which will be going away next year, so I guess the Big 12 next season. Um, and Colorado, uh, really tight game against TCU there. I saw uh, Little Prime, I don't know if that's his nickname, but uh, Sanders, the quarterback, has over 500 passing yards and now four touchdowns. Um, I gave Mitch the day off. Steve Zinsmeister with you on this college football Saturday. My good friend Eric Ruby joins me now from One Last Thought with Eric Ruby, the show that directly uh, comes after ours today. I don't know what it is, Eric, but I woke up today reading all these headlines, and it seems like the country hates the Arizona Cardinals. Very much so. <laughs> like, almost to the point of, like, are y'all serious? <laughs> so, let me read you a couple of these. I'll read you some of my favorites. Cardinals get roasted over awkward Jonathan Gannon motivational speech. Jonathan Gannon awkwardly tries to fire up Cardinals during lackluster pep talk. Jonathan Gannon's Cardinals speech couldn't be more awkward. Here's my personal favorite. Cardinals head coach Jonathan Gannon gives one of the worst motivational speeches in the history of the spoken word. I know they didn't really uh, lay off at all on that one. So Jonathan Gannon gave a speech in the most recent episode of Cardinals Flight Plan, which I like that show, by the way. I realize that it's put together by the Cardinals, so they're not going to address the big elephants in the room, the quarterback situation, which we'll talk about. Uh, trading Isaiah Simmons. None of that gets talked about. But there's this speech where Jonathan Gannon basically calmly says, I want you to be killers. And for some reason, people are up in arms about this. Okay. I see it from both ways because there is the beginning part where he asked, did you take the bus? Did you take the car? It's a little nonchalant. And I can understand why people would look at that and say, all right, that's maybe not the most inspiring vocal leader of all time. As it went on, though, I started to have less of a problem with it. He kind of built momentum up. And something that we've all kind of noticed with Jonathan Gannon, do you remember his intro press conference afterwards when he started running into all the players? He met Rondale Moore, and he was like, oh, look at you. Pew, 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 pew. He's awkward, yeah. He, He doesn't scream football guy from the sense of like Bill Belichick no nonsense like when when he speaks I want killers like you probably are going to listen to that but but Steve that doesn't make him a bad head coach and also to call this the worst speech in the history of spoken word I guarantee you the person who wrote that could not stand up in front of a football team and inspire them well that's the other thing the other aspect of this is that presumably I think the video said this is July 25th. This is his first speech ever in front of his entire team face-to-face 
as a head coach. I'm assuming that as a defensive coordinator, he's probably made speeches in front of teams before. It's not like this is the first time he's ever spoken to a football player. But you got to give the guy some slack, right? Like when I heard the whole bus thing, did you drive in or did you ride the bus? I get that because there's a lot of players on the bubble in training camp that probably didn't buy cars in Arizona. So they're they're still waiting to find out whether or not they need to keep taking the bus. But it's awkward, but it's like it's kind of awkward. Like I mentioned earlier, it, it feels to me like Allen in the hangover when he goes, hey, how about that ride in? I guess that's why they call it Sin City. You know what I mean? Like it's it. You didn't need it. It's like starting a conversation with like, "Hey, well, weather's been pretty crazy, right. right?" But also, I get what he was doing. He was like, "Okay, what? How did y'all get here today?" Right? Because when you're coming into a job, you're always thinking about that day. Whether you're an NFL player, whether you work at a grocery store, whether you're a radio host, right? Like no matter what, when you're driving into work, you're thinking and preparing about your day. Right. So he's saying, okay, how did y'all come in? You come in the bus? Did you drive in? Doesn't matter. Did you get that feeling? That feeling of this is real. I want this. Let's light that fire. What he was trying to say is fine. The delivery was lackluster. But I think the big problem here is that they used it as the promotion of the full video. Like the clip they put out there on social media immediately started with probably the weakest part of his entire speech. Right. Like you listen to sound and and I'll go through some of the sound bites on one last thought. But when you listen to him a little bit later, it's not that awkward. But that beginning part is so just ugh. he got a little more into it when he started talking about like beyond time or I'm we're depending you. we're yeah. depending on you DJ Humphreys is depending on you Jeff Rogers is depending he did get a little more fired up what is it about the national narrative though that some people seem to think that just because the Cardinals cut Colt McCoy that all of a sudden they are now a terrible team that now they're tanking I had somebody here in the office just the other day come to me and say oh they cut Colt McCoy wow they must be really trying to lose uh, is there that big of a difference between what Colt McCoy would have provided and what Josh Dobbs might provide a week from now? Yes, but in the opposite way. Clayton Toon was not ready physically to play NFL football. He was probably ready mentally, but it, it was the end of the road for Colt McCoy. If you saw videos out there during practice, when he threw the ball, there was no zip. They literally had him on non-throwing days to protect his shoulder, which got injured last year. He was done. He was done. And them cutting him has absolutely nothing to do with losing games. If anything, it's the opposite. And I know a lot of people have said that in the last week. Tyler Drake and I said it on Cardinals Corner. This is not a tanking move. But the thing is, tanking and being a team that is so close to the bottom already and is just assumed to be bad is so intriguing to the fans, almost to the point of the opposite end, to where NFL media will gravitate towards something that's probably going to be a train wreck. A wins and, fire. Wins and losses wise. I'm not ready to say train wreck culture wise or coaching or hires or whatever. Like, I think that's a step too far. Just a bad team. Right. They're going to be a bad team. And they're not only going to be a bad team, but they're a bad team with a quarterback controversy. With the number one quarterback in the next draft, a brand new head coach that made his old fans completely mad by how the Super Bowl went down. Like the entire 
NFL ecosystem is going to focus on the Cardinals and hate on them because it's easy. You know who else sucks? The Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You know who else is going to probably suck this year? The Los Angeles Rams. Nobody cares, though, because they don't have all these different pieces, and they also didn't put a video out there of their new head coach being a little awkward talking to the team. You give anybody just an inch when you're already seen in a certain light, they're taking a foot. They're going to run with it. And and that's just, like, if you're a Cardinals fan, I'm sorry, but deal with it. Like, that's just what's going to happen. I think another aspect of the Colt McCoy thing, too, is familiarity plays a huge role in front office and coaching staffs when it comes to quarterbacks specifically. Like, Colt McCoy was already here. He was handed to Monty Ossonfort. Monty Ossonfort didn't handpick him. He handpicked Clayton Toon in the draft. He wanted Josh Dobbs because of his familiarity with the coordinator, Drew Petzing in his offense. Those are handpicked guys that they're going into the season with. Colt McCoy, it doesn't make him a bad player. He just was already here. And also, by the way, it was reported he had a minor procedure back, I think, in February before the offseason, which did hinder him some in the offseason. Maybe he was fine by training camp and everything, but I just don't see how people can conclude that the Cardinals are all of a sudden tanking because they got rid of Colt McCoy. I think the ceiling for this team is the same, if not maybe a little bit higher with the Josh Dobbs than it was with Colt McCoy. Yeah, I. he's faster, he's younger, he's still smart, he has the ability to actually go out there and make plays. And you know what? Maybe the Cardinals just wanted to hold on to Colt through an offseason of uncertainty. A veteran voice in the locker room. Help your young guy in Clayton Tune. He might not be your starting quarterback week one, but Colt McCoy is going to have a significant impact on all, all the guys that he played with, that he basically was probably an extra coach to this entire offseason. You still got value out of him. He just he, he wasn't good enough to be a starting quarterback. And that's fine. That's why they cut him. Yeah. I was reading today about Mike Evans' situation in Tampa Bay. You mentioned Mm. how they're kind of in shambles. I think they're okay with it because they got a Super Bowl out of it, but uh, they're in this situation where they've got a bunch of guys that want to get paid. They want to be on contenders, which Tampa Bay is not. And I had this thing in my head where I was like, you know, if this happened a year from now or six months from now, it would be awesome for the Cardinals, especially if pie in the sky, right? All things go the way the Cardinals hope they go. Let's assume you have the number one pick in the draft which we all know is going to be Caleb Williams. And you have another top five pick from the Houston Texans. Maybe those picks are flipped, whatever. You're going to have two really good picks. Imagine the scenario you're in if you're the Cardinals where you're getting a new quarterback and a top five player, and you can now trade your quarterback for somebody else like a disgruntled wide receiver. Man, that would be really sexy six months from now, but it just doesn't work now. Mike Evans wouldn't want to be on the Cardinals and no. the Cardinals they don't their timeline doesn't line up with Mike Evans but for some reason I had it in my head where I was like next year the Cardinals might be in a scenario where somebody gets ticked with their team inevitably and that might be an option for them. Yeah, and they're going to have money too. That's the thing is rebuilds could take a couple of years, rebuilds can snowball really really quick. You get a good pick, controllable quarterback or a wide receiver if Kyler comes back and you like what you saw. Get a haul for whatever other pick you could trade. And you want to know how much money you got on your books right now? Basically none. Hopkins, gone. Watt, gone. You didn't pay anybody a big contract this entire offseason. You're going to have the space to do that if the opportunity arises. It might not be within a year, 
but it will be at some point. This team is not planning on being a losing franchise for a long time. Yeah, a conversation maybe we uh, revisit here in like six months to a year, but definitely something that I that got me thinking this morning. All right, Eric Ruby, one last thought with Eric Ruby starts at 1 o'clock. Looking forward to seeing what you got on tap today, Eric. All right, coming up next, we're going to wrap up the show. The Michigan Wolverines did something at the beginning of their game today that just baffles me. I'm going to tell you what happened and why I was so disgusted. Is that the right word? Weirded out by what they did? We'll talk about it next. It's Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Mitch and Steve present Footnotes on Arizona Sports Saturday. Gave Mitch the day off. Steve Zinsmeister with you. Footnotes, we run through some of the things that have happened throughout the course of the show. Um, Michigan football, the Wolverines, not a big fan. I grew up a Buckeye. Uh... They started their game today with something very odd, a tribute to Coach Harbaugh. I guess they, like, lined up on the field and held up a four. He's been suspended for four games. Does that sound right, Trev? You're you're a Wolverine. I think it's three. Three games? Okay. Either way, they're holding up four fingers to honor the suspended coach, Jim Harbaugh. Um, forgive me if, I, if I'm remembering this wrong. Isn't he suspended for lying to NCAA investigators? It's not like Coach Harbaugh is sick and dying. I, why, why do we need to tribute Coach Harbaugh? Hey, we love our coach, man. I, that's fine. You can like him, but he's in trouble. When your buddy gets suspended at school, you don't tribute your buddy. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's fair. Like, you tribute someone when they pass away or when they're in the hospital or, like, when they're going through a tough time. I, I guess being suspended is a tough time. Or recover from an injury or something. The best way to honor Coach Harbaugh is to come out and play well, to prove that you are the good team that he trained you up to be. And they did that on the field. You didn't need to come out and tribute Harbaugh. He's in trouble for lying. Don't Just celebrate to that. Hear there. Ugh, I guess. I don't know. I don't get it. I never will. Uh, Coach Prime's debut went pretty well for Colorado. Deion Sanders in his first game gets TCU. Ranked TCU, by the way. Number 17, I think. Uh, Listen, this one ends 45-42 in favor of the Buffs. Colorado wins their debut with Coach Prime. This is going to get the most hype around college football. This will be the most talked about game. Regardless of whether it's the best game or not. And it was close. It was a very good game. Shadur Sanders, uh, Coach Prime's kid. 38 for 47, 510 passing yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. That's going to get talked about. Killing it. You're going to see him on all the early Heisman lists, whether it's deserved or not. And by the way, this is a TCU team that I don't expect them to be what they were last year necessarily. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that they're going to be that good. In fact, I would argue to say they probably won't be. Yeah, didn't they lose a lot of talent from the championship game? Yeah, they lost yeah. a lot of talent. There's no doubt about that. And and it's not the kind of program that is consistently great. This is the kind of program that every now and then they put up an amazing season. That's right. Um, and I think that's what Colorado might end up being. I don't necessarily think that they're going to, you know, have 10 wins this season. I don't, I don't anticipate that. It could happen, I guess. Um, but I think this is the kind of program that under Coach Prime, like every couple of years are going to be kind of special. Yeah, I agree. I get that vibe. Like it's it's definitely possible. But as for now, like I kind of thought this might be like a 500 team in the Pac-12. And we'll see about when they move to the Big 12 next year. But great debut for Coach Prime. Hard to argue that. 
I want to give some love to Christian Walker, by the way, first baseman for the Diamondbacks. He homered yesterday against his former team, the Baltimore Orioles. You might not have even known that Christian Walker played for the Orioles. Uh, He kind of did a little bit before getting tossed to the street. There have not been many players in baseball that have filled shoes the way that Christian Walker has, which is brilliantly. He replaced Paul Goldschmidt, the greatest offensive player in D-backs history, and an eventual MVP in St. Louis. Walker was kicked around several different places, didn't really catch on with some bad Orioles teams, by the way. It's not like they were this Orioles team that they are now when he was around. He gets tossed to the street. He gets a chance after tearing it up in Reno for the Diamondbacks for one year. They picked him over guys like Kevin Crone, who was one of the better hitters in the minor leagues. Pavin Smith, who was one of Mike Hazen's first, he was his first first round pick as a GM. Walker gets the nod over those guys, replaces Goldschmidt, and is about to have his second straight season of 30 home runs or more. He's got 64 extra base hits, and we just started September. He could have his first over 100 RBI season this year. Christian Walker, I'm here to tell you, is one of the most well-rounded first basemen in the game, but he gets overshadowed by guys like Goldie, Freddie Freeman hitting 340. Matt Olson hitting 45 home runs this year. Pete Alonso is capable of the home run ball, certainly. I'm telling you what, I'll, I'll take Walker at his price, at his cost, any day of the week over those guys. Those are superstar players, there's no doubt, and, and in a lot of ways better than him at first base. But with Walker winning a gold glove last year, he's probably going to win another one this year. I think he's one of the unsung heroes in the league at first base. I really do. And to fill those shoes that he had to fill... It says a lot about him. He's the heart and soul in the middle of this, this Diamondbacks lineup. Uh, Cal and Stanford are leaving the Pac-12 next year. Well, the Pac-12 won't exist, so I guess they're not really leaving anything. They're just kind of finding a home with the ACC. I get why the ACC wants them. They are floundering. They're realizing Clemson's probably going to leave. FSU might leave. Miami's probably going to leave. Maybe a UNC ditches them as well. So if we're going to lose big schools in the future the way the Big 12 has, like Oklahoma and Texas leaving for the SEC, we got to get ourselves some middle-of-the-road programs like Cal and Stanford so that we can fill those holes and we can continue to exist. They don't want to go extinct the way the Pac-12 is next season. got to do what you got to do. At least ASU, I mean... They, when they're in the Big 12, they'll probably be in a division where they're playing like, at most, they'll have to go to Lubbock. I think that's like the furthest east they might have to travel. Maybe Dallas area or something like that, like Waco. But I got to be honest with you, Stanford student athletes having to tra- uh, travel to Florida, to North Carolina, there is no western teams in the ACC. SMU's going to join, so maybe you get to go to Dallas for a weekend or something. But aside from that, the closest team you're going to be playing is on the East Coast. That's a four and a half hour flight, maybe five hour flight in some some parts. That's insane that they might have to do that. Oh, and by the way, Stanford and Cal and SMU are agreeing to take on basically no media rights revenue for the next decade. That's where what the position we're in now is these teams are so desperate for somebody else to play against that they're willing to sacrifice the financials for the next decade. Imagine the scenario that Oregon State and Washington State are going to have to go through to find somebody to play against. It's unreal.
Hey, thanks to Trevor Henry behind the glass today. Thanks to you for listening. I'm Steve Zinsmeister. You've been listening to Arizona Sports Saturday. One last thought with Eric Ruby is up next. Have a great day, everyone.